The title of our session this morning is War of the Worldviews, and uh, I'm grateful that you are taking time out of your morning this morning to be here as we talk about this important subject. We're going to open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you that you are the author and creator of truth, that you are the one who defines truth, that you have revealed truth in your word and also through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that through him and through what you have revealed in Scripture, we can know the truth. As Jesus himself said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And so, Lord, we ask that even today as we talk about this important subject of worldviews and the way in which our society has developed, the way in which Western society has shifted away from a biblical worldview towards secularism, that this would equip us to be lights in the darkness and to stand firm for the sake of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is him who we worship, and it is in his name that we pray these things today. Amen. All right, our title again for this morning is War of the Worldviews, and I'm borrowing that title, obviously modified somewhat, but I'm borrowing that title from an 1898 novel written by H.G. Wells called The War of the Worlds. Some of you are familiar with that novel. It actually was a pioneering work in what in the late 19th century was the burgeoning field of science fiction. And it was actually 40 years later that another fairly well-known American actor, this Individual also with the last name of Wells, Orson Wells, in 1938, October 30th of 1938, he went on the radio to actually dramatize the story of the War of the Worlds. It was part of a dramatic theatrical program that aired on the radio regularly. And at the beginning of that program, it was clear that it was just radio theater. But for those who tuned in late to the program, famously, many of them thought that, in fact, what was being said over the radio was actual news. So the War of the Worlds is about an attack on Earth by Martians. And in 1938, there were those who heard that radio report, and they thought that the Earth was actually being attacked by extraterrestrials. It caused no small stir. And Orson Welles had to defend himself later, making the point that he was not intentionally trying to create public panic. So the War of the Worlds, uh, a story about an alien invasion. And this seminar this morning is not about an alien invasion, but there are times when we look at our news feed and we read the headlines And we do feel like we are living in a society that has been invaded by thinking from another planet. Uh, We (laughs) look at these headlines and we wonder where it is that we're living and when the invasion 
took place and why it is that all of a sudden we find ourselves on what seems at times to be the losing end of a culture war where the irrational has taken over. So not a real alien invasion, but certainly an alien worldview. And there's a sense in which, as those who are followers of Jesus Christ, we are the ones who have the foreign, out-of-this-world, heavenly mindset, such that Scripture even refers to believers as aliens and strangers, not in an extraterrestrial sense, but in the sense of being so different and distinct that those in the world around us sometimes don't know what to do with us. So War of the Worldviews. The purpose of this seminar is to talk about developments in Western society over the last three to four hundred years that explain why our culture is where it is now. Realize that some of the developments that we've seen in recent culture, even things that Dr. Lawson was talking about in first service, things like the LGBTQIA plus agenda and other developments seem like they have rushed onto the scene very, very quickly. And yet what we find when we dig a little deeper is that they are the fruit of philosophical shifts that go back centuries and in that sense are really not all that surprising. Part of the reason that I wanted to address this issue is because I think it is so foundational for us to understand the idea of worldviews, even when it comes to things like apologetics, to recognize that the person that you're talking to, if they are an unbeliever, that they view reality through a completely different lens than you do as a Christian, a different worldview. What is a worldview? Well, simply defined, a worldview is a fundamental set of beliefs that comprise the lens through which a person or group of people interprets life, reality, and the world around them. And so a a worldview really defines and determines. It is that, again, basic or core set of beliefs that govern the way in which one views life and morality, values, belief systems, really purpose and meaning in this world. As Christians, we have a distinctly biblical worldview, and we discover quickly that that worldview is often at odds with those around us. Part of the catalyst for my interest in this subject was a study that I came across not too long ago. It's a study that's been done every year for quite a number of years, most recently in, I believe it was February of this year. It's done by the Cultural Research Center, which is uh, led by a guy named George Barna, who has done quite a bit of work in terms of studies and statistics related to Christianity and the church in America. And according to the Cultural Research Center, nearly 70%, I believe it was 68%, of Americans claim to be Christians. And as those who are Christians, we might look at that and we would say, oh, that's good. America is still a Christian nation. However, and there is a however here, 
The research that was done just recently goes on to assert that in spite of the fact that nearly 70% of Americans consider themselves to be Christians, only 6% of Americans actually hold a biblical worldview. That means that if these statistics are even close to accurate, 94 to 95% of American adults do not hold a biblical worldview. The research shows that those statistics get even worse as you look at younger demographics. And so if you look, for example, at parents of those with young children, children under the age of 13, the research showed that only 2% of parents raising the next generation have a biblical worldview. And then for someone who thinks deeply about the church, this final statistic is intriguing to me. They discovered that only 37% of pastors have a biblical worldview. So the prognosis is not good for American culture and American society. Not only does our society largely discard the tenets of a biblical worldview, but in addition to that, future generations being influenced by parents and even within the church are largely being raised without a biblical worldview. Well, what is a biblical worldview? Well, according to, again, the Cultural Research Center, a biblical worldview was defined as believing in an absolute or in absolute moral truths that exist and that such truth is defined by the Bible and firm belief in six specific religious views. So absolute truth, absolute truth defined by the Bible, and then these six specific truths. Number one, Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. Number two, God is the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe, and he still rules it today. Number three, salvation is a gift from God and cannot be earned. Number four, Satan is real. Number five, a Christian has a responsibility to share his or her faith in Christ with other people. And number six, the Bible is accurate in all its teachings. So this was the litmus test that was used to determine whether or not someone has or possesses a biblical worldview. And again, these are just basic fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. The belief in Jesus Christ, that he was not just sinless, but God, very God, and the Savior of the world. The belief in God's rule over all things, belief in the truthfulness of Scripture, in the necessity of salvation from sin by grace through faith, the reality of Satan and sin, and the belief that a Christian, one who's been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, will be faithful as a testimony and a witness to those around him. So this is a very, very basic set of Christian tenets, and it's based on this then that Barna has found through his 
surveys. And admittedly, Barna's research we sometimes take with a bit of a grain of salt, but I do think it's an interesting indicator that using this as the basic test, 94% of Americans do not believe this. So if you're starting to feel like we're becoming an increasing minority, these statistics back that up. So Barna had this to say, the American church has lowered the entry bar so much that it is difficult to identify any beliefs that disqualify one from claiming to be a Christian. And that's the interesting disconnect in all of this, is that you have 70% of Americans claiming to be Christian, and yet only 5 to 6% of Americans actually believing that the Bible and its teachings are true. Barnett also said this in a different place. He said, people do not develop a biblical worldview randomly or by default. The impact of arts and entertainment, government and public schools is clearly apparent in the shift away from biblical perspectives to a more experiential and emotional form of decision-making. And so he's beginning to put his finger on some of the reasons why American society has steadily moved away from a biblical worldview to a secular worldview. And we're going to dig into more of that in our seminar this morning. In terms of worldviews, Worldviews, I would argue, fall into two basic categories. There are what we might call theistic worldviews, meaning worldviews that recognize that there is a God who created the universe. A God, or in the case of a polytheistic system, perhaps multiple deities. And you'll see some of those listed there, Roman Catholicism, Islam, Judaism, Some of the Abrahamic religions would be monotheistic. And then you have, for example, Mormonism, which is a pseudo-Christian cult, and Hinduism, both Mormonism and Hinduism, are decidedly polytheistic in terms of their conception of God. Over against that, you have a second category of worldviews, which would be atheistic and agnostic worldviews. Atheistic meaning they do not believe in God. Agnostic meaning they're not sure if God exists. In either case, they operate in a way in which whether or not there is a God is irrelevant. So secular humanism, deism. Deism does acknowledge that there was a creator, but says the creator has no interest in how men live. Things like Marxism, nihilism, and even Eastern mysticism are atheistic in the way in which they view the world. While throughout much of church history, the last 2,000 years, the categories on the left have been prevalent, in Western society, the categories on the right, the atheistic and agnostic worldviews, are becoming increasingly popular And it is those worldviews in particular that we will focus on this morning because they are having 
a dominating influence in the West. Really, against all false worldviews, whether theistic or atheistic, a biblical worldview is, seeks to engage with the truth of the gospel in order to shine the light of God's truth into the darkness. All right, I want to talk a little bit about what has happened in Western society to get us to this point. And admittedly, we are living at a time where we are experiencing and seeing the fruit of corruption and bad philosophy finally bearing fruit in a way that creates shocking headlines. Uh, I've joked with some of the fellow pastors here at Grace that sometimes you read real headlines and then you go to a place like the Babylon Bee and read fake headlines and you honestly sometimes cannot tell the difference because things are so crazy that the real headlines sound like they should be parodies. So how did we get to this place? How did we get to this time in Western society? Well, the answer really goes back to what is known as the Age of Reason or the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was a movement in the 17th and 18th centuries. And uh, from a theological perspective, I know this isn't even a word, but it really is more accurately the endarkenment. But in any case, the Enlightenment is the idea of people feeling enlightened because they finally threw off in Western society the trappings of religious tradition and religious authority. If we were to go back into the high and late Middle Ages, we would find that the predominant worldview in the West was that of religious traditionalism. It was defined by Roman Catholicism, and in Roman Catholicism, the authority is the Pope, the magisterium of the church, tradition is paramount, and the means of salvation, the goal of life, is defined in terms of the sacramental system. It was this man-made traditionalism that needed to, and rightly so, needed to be overthrown by biblical truth that led to the Protestant Reformation. Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and others. And what led to the Reformation really was, first and foremost, a commitment to Christ as the head of the church. So it was about authority that the Pope is not the head of the church, but Christ is the head of the church. And if Christ is the head of the church, then his word is the authority, not religious tradition. So the Reformation replaced religious tradition with the rightful authority of the scriptures. It recovered biblical authority as the final and sole authority for faith and practice. And then the gospel defined in the scriptures is recovered as the true gospel, a gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, based on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's in the 16th century. But if we move ahead to the 17th century, we find that there is another system that moves in 
and begins to sow seeds of really religious doubt within Western society. And that movement is rationalism and empiricism. And obviously, there are some things about this that are good. The scientific revolution was not a bad thing. But there are those who take rationalism and empiricism and use them as ways to attack the authority of Scripture. Rationalism is about reason, and we'll talk a little bit more about that here on the next slide. Empiricism is about science. So empiricism, the empirical method, the scientific method is all about observation, observing the world around us. Rationalism is all about reason and using the mind. And the idea was we don't need religious tradition, and we also, in Western society, don't need the Scripture. All we need is our reason and science. Reason and science are the authority, and this led to naturalism and also materialism. Materialism, not the idea of I'm materialistic in the sense of I want lots of material goods, but materialism in the sense that this material universe is all that there is because only that which can be seen or observed can be tested through the scientific method. And then there was a bit of a reaction to rationalism and empiricism because people in just normal everyday life don't like the boringness (laughs) of a, you know, sort of a clinical laboratory approach to life. And so there was the development of something called romanticism. Uh, Romanticism, the idea being an emphasis on the arts, on emotional expression, on things like music and entertainment and feelings, that the feelings uh, really are the way in which people should think about how they live and govern their lives. And so you have things like relativism and hedonism that come out of the Romantic movement. I just want to introduce you to a couple of key people in this regard. Uh, René Descartes, a French philosopher, is considered the father of rationalism, Descartes famously, perhaps you've seen this on a bumper sticker or an internet meme, famously said, I think, therefore I am, which really does encompass the heartbeat of rationalism that existence is defined and established on human reason. I think, that's human reason, therefore I exist. Therefore, I can understand the world around me. So the basis, the authority for interpreting life, the touchstone principle behind this worldview is human reason. And Descartes famously wrote a book called A Discourse on the Method in the early 17th century that set rationalism in motion. Then you have Sir Francis Bacon. He is considered the father of empiricism. I hesitate to even say his name since we're coming up on the lunch hour, but (laughs) I know the word Francis makes you all hungry. Um, 
Empiricism, as we've already said, is all about studying the world around us. It's really borrowing from Aristotelian thought with an emphasis on the material universe. And although men like Francis Bacon still were Christians, or at least claimed to be Christians, through Descartes and through Bacon, we have the establishment of a brand new worldview in the West that is defined, again, by reason and by science. And then we have Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the 18th century, who is considered the father of Romanticism. So the father of rationalism, the father of empiricism, and the father of Romanticism. And again, Romanticism was a reaction to the cold clinical approach to life represented by the rationalists and the empiricists, that said, hey, we really need to emphasize things like enjoyment and happiness and fulfillment and feelings and emotions and the arts and entertainment. Although Romanticism is considered a reaction to rationalism and empiricism, the reality is that all three of these systems have merged together to create the general secularism that characterizes Western society. I have a slide later that will have this quote, but I'll say it now. I heard one historian say this, that in Western society, people are born into rationalism and raised in romanticism. And what that historian meant by this was that in Western society, most people are born into a world where they are told that reason and science are the authority for how we know what we know about the world around us. And romanticism, fulfillment, happiness, enjoyment, entertainment, is presented as the meaning or purpose in life. So science and reason are the authority And personal fulfillment is the ambition or the aim. You can even see this shift taking place in Western society if you compare, for example, the first question of the Shorter Catechism from the Westminster Assembly in the 1640s with the Declaration of Independence in the 1770s. You're all familiar, I'm sure, with the first question of the Shorter Catechism from Westminster. You may not know that that's where it came from, but if I was to ask you, what is the chief end of man, you would probably say, oh, I've heard that before. It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And even the second question, which asks, what is the means by which man can enjoy, glorify God and enjoy him forever? The scriptures, the scriptures provide the means by which we can come to know how to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That worldview represented in that question is a distinctly Reformation worldview. It is a worldview in which the glory of God is paramount as the aim of life and the scriptures are presented as the authority for how we interpret reality. But, Contrast that with the Declaration of Independence. And this is no criticism of the Declaration of Independence. 
I celebrated July 4th just two weeks ago or whenever that was, <laughs> a few weeks ago, um, as, uh, and, and was happy to do so. But what do we find in the Declaration of Independence? We find this assertion that God has granted certain inalienable rights. And what are those rights consist of? They consist of the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Well, who decided that the pursuit of happiness is one of the fundamental rights that human beings should enjoy? That's a result of romanticism. It's a result and a reflection of the dominant romanticism that characterized the 1700s. So in the 17th century, the 1600s, the goal of life is to glorify God. In the 18th century, one of the inalienable rights of the Declaration of Independence is the pursuit of happiness. And if you were to leave this seminar right now and go hear Greg Fraser's seminar on the faith of the founding fathers, you would discover that Thomas Jefferson and many of the other founding fathers are not coming at this from a biblical worldview, but instead are looking at the events around them through the lens of deistic romanticism, post-enlightenment philosophy. Okay, let's talk a little bit about this idea that people can call themselves Christians and not believe the Bible, right? We saw that at the opening with these statistics that 70% of Americans claim to be Christians, and yet 95, 94% of Americans don't believe the Bible is accurate in its teachings. Well, this really goes back to a man named Friedrich Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher, interestingly enough, German word means veil maker, and that's an appropriate last name because the philosophical and theological system that he originated really did put a veil over the truth. He's considered the father of modern liberal theology, So Schleiermacher, as you can see there, grew up in the late 18th century into the early 19th century. He was the son of a Lutheran army chaplain, so he was the son of a minister. He was raised in the Christian faith, and yet when he went off to university, he began to hear some of the critical attacks on Scripture, critical attacks that came from those who were steeped in rationalism and empiricism, who said, we don't need the Bible anymore because all we need is reason, philosophy, and science. And when he encountered those criticisms, because he was himself not truly born again, he experienced a shipwreck of faith, and he actually wrote a letter to his father in which he articulated some of these attacks on the scripture and asked his dad what he thought about them. And his dad wrote back and said, yeah, I mean, I've heard those same kind of critical attacks. There's nothing to them. The Bible is true. But then in January of that year, Schleiermacher wrote his dad again and confessed the fact that the doubts that he expressed in the earlier letter were actually his own. 
And he said, I I can no longer believe that the Bible is the word of God. I can no longer believe that Jesus Christ was a vicarious substitute on the cross. I can no longer believe that it is through faith in Christ that we are forgiven and born again. So he denies the fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. But what makes Schleiermacher unique, because there were many people before him in church history who didn't believe the gospel, what makes Schleiermacher unique is that in spite of his denial of belief in the accuracy and inerrancy of Scripture and in the substitutionary work of Christ, he insisted on still being thought of and called a Christian. So Schleiermacher is the first to claim to be a Christian and yet not hold to the basic fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. Schleiermacher felt like the Bible couldn't sustain the Christian faith anymore, and so he looked for a different basis for his Christian faith, and he argued that Christianity should be grounded in romanticism, that it was feelings and emotions of religious experience that made Christianity authentic, not the truthfulness of the Bible. But this set in motion then liberal theology. Now, when we talk about theological liberalism, we're not talking about politics. I realize liberalism gets used a lot as a word in politics, but we're talking specifically about theology. And when we talk about theological liberalism or liberal Protestantism, what we mean is people who claim to be Christian and yet do not believe the Bible. That's liberalism in one sentence. They view themselves as progressive. They've progressed past the archaic views of the Reformation, and they've embraced the modern views of the Enlightenment. And because of their rationalism and what science says, the Bible, we can't believe that anymore. And so we have to find some other basis for our Christianity. For Schleiermacher, that was religious experience. For a little bit later, a guy named Albert Ritchell, it was social activism that he saw his Christian faith being defined in and grounded in. And honestly, much of the liberalism in the 20th and 21st century in America has been defined by that kind of social activism as its key foundation. But the idea that you could be a Christian and not believe the Bible goes back to the early 19th century with Friedrich Schleiermacher. As a result of Schleiermacher's attack on the Bible, you had increasingly this idea coming across from Europe to the United States in the uh, 19th and early 20th centuries. And there were those who stood firm against it That would include the Princeton theologians. In fact, Princeton Theological Seminary was started in the early 19th century, the early 1800s, as a bastion of theological truth to defend key things like the inerrancy and accuracy of the scriptures. And so men like Charles Hodge and his son Archibald Alexander Hodge and 
Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield, these men stood firm against the attacks of liberalism. It's quite interesting that these men were from Princeton because today Princeton is not at all a bastion of theological truth. Here's B.B. Warfield talking about what defined a Christian worldview over against the liberal attacks. He says, The church has always believed her scriptures to be the book of God, of which God was in such a sense the author that every one of its affirmations of whatever kind is to be esteemed as the utterance of God, of infallible truth and authority. And that really summarizes what the Princetonians, the Princeton theologians like Warfield, believed. And it articulates the fundamental principle of a biblical worldview, that the Bible is true and that the Bible is the word of God. And because God is its author, it comes with God's authority. In fact, the word authority has at the beginning of it author because the authority comes from the author. And so God's word has God's own authority. I want to talk a little bit then about the fight between liberalism and Bible-believing Christianity in the United States going back to the late 19th, early 20th century. So as modernist ideas became increasingly popular in America, Bible-believing Christians worked together to confront the theological uh, liberalism And the conflict within the mainline denominations took place mainly in the early 20th century. In fact, it was in the 1920s and 1930s. So the mainline denominations in the United States at that time would have been the Methodists, the Baptists, and the Presbyterians. Those would have been the three largest denominations, Protestant denominations in America in the early 20th century, but within each of those denominations, you had increasing pressure from liberalism, from progressives, to get rid of the Bible as the authoritative standard for what defines Christianity. In 1910, there was, within the Presbyterian Church, a group of Presbyterians that published five key tenets of the Christian faith that they understood as defining Bible-believing Christians over against liberals. The liberals often referred to themselves as modernists. So the modernists, what was it that they were attacking? They were attacking, number one, the inerrancy of Scripture because modernism said Scripture is full of errors. And then secondly, they were attacking the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Why the virgin birth? Because the virgin birth is the miracle in which God became man. So by attacking the virgin birth, they're attacking the deity of Christ. Why does modernism attack the deity of Christ? Because in modernism, the natural materialistic universe is not a supernatural universe. It's only that which can be tested by science. And since miracles are supernatural, miracles have to be discarded. 
That was the modernist approach. In addition to that, the idea that Christ died as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin, obviously the bodily resurrection of Christ, because that again is a miraculous event, and then any of the miracles of Christ, the authenticity of them was rejected by the modernists. So the attack was on Scripture, and then anything in Scripture that is supernatural. Because within the modernist framework, supernaturalism is excluded by their commitment to a materialistic universe. From 1910 to 1915, there was a group of Bible-believing Christian scholars who wrote a series of essays in which they defended what they called the fundamentals of the faith. And in fact, that series of essays was published in five books called The Fundamentals. And much of that work was actually spearheaded here in Los Angeles down at, at that time, a small Bible institute called the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, what today we know as Biola. And in 1920... There was a reporter with the Watchman Examiner, his name was Curtis Lee Laws, and he said that those who believe the fundamentals and are willing to do what he called battle royale, in other words, they're willing to contend for the fundamentals, that these people should be known as fundamentalists. So it was Curtis Lee Laws in 1920 who actually coined the term fundamentalist. It's kind of funny how words morph over time because that word has made its way into mainstream culture to really be a synonym for extremist. But in its original context, a fundamentalist was someone who holds to the fundamental truths of the Bible and is willing to contend for those truths. It's a bit of an oxymoron to call anyone like a Muslim fundamentalist because no Muslim would hold to the core truths of the Bible, but such is language. So let's talk then a little bit about fundamentalism versus modernism. So this was the two sides, really the two worldviews that were colliding within the mainline American denominations in the 1920s and 1930s. In the 1920s and 1930s, the battle for really the Bible uh, took place within, again, Methodism, Presbyterianism, and the Baptist denominations. One of the significant turning points within the way in which at least the public viewed this conflict within these Christian denominations was the Scopes Monkey Trial. And some of you are familiar with this trial in 1925. In 1925, in the state of Tennessee, there was a state law that prohibited the teaching of Darwinian evolution in public schools. Of course, you're familiar with Charles Darwin and his 1860 work on the origin of species. But in 1925, it was illegal in the state of Tennessee to teach evolution in public school. The ACLU 
wanted to challenge that law, and they found a biology teacher in Tennessee named John T. Scopes, John Scopes, who was willing to teach evolution. The ACLU promised him that they would take care of any legal fees or any fines that he might experience as a result. And, of course, he got in trouble for teaching evolution in the school system there. This led to a major public trial, and part of the reason it was such a widely uh, reported event in American society is because it involved a couple of really high-level attorneys. There was a well-known defense attorney at the time named Clarence Darrow who defended John Scopes, and then there was actually a presidential candidate. He was never president, but a guy named William Jennings Bryan who was the prosecutor who represented a fundamentalist worldview going after this biology teacher who was teaching evolution in the public school system. Now, in the course of that trial, William Jennings Bryan was able to demonstrate and prove that John Scopes had indeed violated the law and Scopes was fined in keeping with the due penalty for his violation. So, Bryant won the trial, but in the court of public opinion, American society saw this as sort of a culturally backwards, anti-intellectual, anti-scientific, religious attempt to suppress progress. And as a result, in at least the eyes of much of the American public, fundamentalism began to be viewed as a very negative thing. In addition to that, by the late 1920s, early 1930s, most of the mainline denominations had actually shifted in terms of the majority from conservative Bible-believing Christians to progressive, theologically liberal modernists. And the result was that the mainline denominations in the 1920s and 30s all went liberal. So if you're wondering why the Presbyterian Church, uh, PCUSA, the mainline Presbyterian Church, why are they flying a rainbow flag? Or why is the United Methodist Church, they were recently in the news, why is there... You know, why is their leadership pro-LGBTQ? It's because back in the 1920s and 30s, they all went liberal, which is to say they still call themselves Christian and they still call themselves a church, but they don't believe the Bible. They don't believe in the moral principles that are taught in Scripture. And again, what Dr. Lawson said this morning was such a perfect segue for even talking about this subject today. So we shouldn't be surprised that that kind of thing has happened because they've been Christian in name only for a long time. And it was actually at that time that fundamentalists fled from the mainline denominations and they started new institutions and new schools, uh, new denominations, uh, denominations like the Conservative Baptist Convention or denominations like the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches, uh, groups like the Independent Fundamentalist Churches of America, the IFCA, uh, Presbyterian Church of America, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, Reformed Presbyterian Church. These all started as new denominations 
that were the result of the conservative Bible-believing Christians leaving the mainline denominations. The only mainline denomination that ended up surviving all of that was the Southern Baptists. But as some of you know, the Southern Baptist movement is even today broiled in, embroiled in quite a bit of controversy. Just one little tangent. Uh, it was actually out of one of those new denominations, the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches, that a small seminary was started in Los Angeles in 1927 called Los Angeles Baptist Seminary. It moved up to Santa Clarita, I think, in the 1940s and became Los Angeles Baptist College and Seminary. And in 1985, it became the Master's College. So even the beginnings of the Master's College are explained by this conflict between liberalism or modernism and fundamentalism. Uh, Because fundamentalism... Because fundamentalism had garnered a reputation within American society for being combative and for being anti-intellectual, and I don't really think that those were fair criticisms, but they're the way in which fundamentalism began to be perceived, there were those, especially among a younger generation of fundamentalists, who felt like they needed to distance themselves from the reputation of fundamentalism. And so in the 1940s, you had a group of young fundamentalists who started a new movement called New Evangelicalism, sometimes called Neo-Evangelicalism. And in 1942, a group of them met together in St. Louis, Missouri, and they started a new organization called the National Association of Evangelicals for United Action. Eventually, it was just called the National Association of Evangelicals. And the goal of this new movement and this new organization was that they wanted to still cling to the fundamentals of the faith, but they wanted to do it in a way that was friendly and culturally and intellectually respectable. So they wanted to be respectable fundamentalists. Uh, Eventually, the neo or the new got dropped, and this movement simply became known as the evangelical movement. Now, the term evangelicalism actually goes all the way back to the Reformation. It was Martin Luther who referred to his churches as evangelical churches. Tyndale brought that over into English. So the term has been around for a long time. But when we talk about American evangelicalism, American evangelicalism goes back to the 1940s. And it was, again, to be the friendly face of fundamentalism. In addition to starting this uh, new association... This group, uh, the leader of this group was a man named Harold John Ockengay. He was a pastor in uh, Boston area, I believe. It was on the East Coast. Um, He, along with some of his other founders of the National Association of Evangelicals, decided that they needed to start a new seminary. And that new seminary, again, was going to be this flagship of evangelicalism. It was going to be respectable fundamentalism. And that seminary 
is called Fuller Theological Seminary and was started in Pasadena. Fuller is an interesting case study with regard to evangelicalism because although Fuller started out as a school that affirmed the basic fundamentals of the faith, like the inerrancy of Scripture, they were always in a tension between the fundamentals of the Christian faith and the desire to be respected in the academic community, and eventually that desire for popularity and respect outweighed their commitment to their fundamentalist roots, and Fuller eventually abandoned its commitment to the inerrancy of Scripture. And for those of you who know the history of Fuller, well, the rest is history. Uh, In, I believe it was the late 90s, for I think it was the 50th anniversary of Fuller Seminary, a historian named George Marsden wrote a history. He was actually commissioned by Fuller to write the history of Fuller Seminary over the first 50 years. And he wrote a book called Reforming Fundamentalism, which again is that idea that they were trying to make fundamentalism academically respectable. And he really outlines the compromise and the shift that took place at Fuller over their first 50 years. And for someone like me, I I read that history and I thought, oh my goodness, this is like such a clear, uh, such a clear critique of the compromise and capitulation that Fuller has um, caved into. But what was interesting is when the book came out, the folks at Fuller thought it was wonderful. And they saw it as, look how far we've come. Look how far we've progressed. Which, again, is that idea of progressivism. In the 1950s and 1960s, a preacher uh, associated with New Evangelicalism came to the forefront. That would be Billy Graham. And so New Evangelicalism really was defined by an organization, the New National Association of Evangelicals, a seminary, Fuller Theological Seminary, a preacher, Billy Graham, and eventually also a periodical which was called Christianity Today, and some of you are familiar with that as well. In the 1970s and 80s, evangelicalism began increasingly or became increasingly preoccupied with politics and with, again, trying to have influence in society. In fact, I would say from the very beginning, what evangelicalism wanted more than anything else was influence. And unfortunately, over the decades, that quest for influence has proven detrimental to their commitment to the fundamentals. Fundamentalism, after the split with evangelicalism, became increasingly separatistic. And so fundamentalism became so separatistic that it eventually had no influence on mainstream society anymore because it didn't engage with the culture. Evangelicalism, by contrast, became very influential. So influential that when George W. Bush was put in the White House, Time Magazine ran an article on who are the evangelicals and essentially called evangelicalism a political conference. But evangelicalism did become influential, but unfortunately in its quest for influence, it lost the distinctiveness of the gospel along the way. And so you have fundamentalism maintaining its message but losing its voice and evangelicalism maintaining its voice but losing its message. 
And the result is that neither fundamentalism or evangelicalism have had a positive impact on American society in the last 50 years of any noticeable degree. Historically, evangelicalism has been defined by an affirmation of both Scripture, its veracity, and the gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But sadly, the term evangelical has largely lost any distinctive meaning. And again, that is because you have so many who call themselves evangelical, but they don't actually hold with any conviction to the core tenets of the Christian faith. And so we come back to Barna's research. 70% of Americans call themselves Christian. Most of them would call themselves evangelical Christian. And yet only 6% of Americans actually believe that the Bible is accurate and hold to its basic tenets. Uh, By the way, and this is just a footnote, it does make it somewhat difficult for those of us who are Bible-believing Christians to know what to call ourselves uh, because we don't want the baggage of cultural fundamentalism, and we also don't want the baggage of compromising evangelicalism. So where does that leave us? To this point, no one has come up with a good alternate term I know Dr. MacArthur has talked about times when he had conversations with Dr. Sproul, and Dr. Sproul suggested R.C. Sproul that we be called imputationists, and Dr. MacArthur made the joke that that sounds like we're cutting off people's limbs. Um, So we generally call ourselves conservative evangelicals. The conservative part means we believe the fundamentals of the faith. All right, let's talk a little bit about when worldviews collide. When worldviews collide. In Western society, most people today, here's that quote I had given you earlier, are born into rationalism and raised in romanticism. They are born into a world where they are told, again, that the authority for all knowledge is found in reason and science. Truth is defined by reason and science. And they are born into a world where they're told the goal of your life is your own fulfillment. That is the fruit of rationalism, empiricism, and romanticism. Let's talk a little bit about the distinction between these two worldviews. So we have, first of all, a biblical worldview. In a biblical worldview, the authority is the triune God. God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is the authority such that we seek to glorify him and live according to what pleases him. I think of 2 Corinthians 5.9, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to Christ. Reality is then defined for us and interpreted in terms of the fact that this is God's universe. This is God's universe. Truth is absolute. It is found in the scriptures. And so we engage in God's universe in an effort to glorify him according to his word. And purpose, as we've already mentioned 
and as the Westminster Catechism puts it so well, is to glorify God and to find our joy in Him, to enjoy Him forever. It's quite different than the secular worldview. In the secular worldview, the authority is either found in self or sometimes it is found in government. And so you have uh, in the West self being the primary authority. But in other post-Enlightenment systems, like Marxism, for example, the state fills the vacuum that is left by a denial of even the existence of God. In terms of reality, it is atheistic naturalism. This universe is all that exists. This universe is all that there is. So only that which can be tested by the scientific method is valid. And since God and concepts, even concepts like morality, since those things are unable to be tested by the scientific method, they are entirely arbitrary and relative. So the view of truth is, truth is, uh, it's not absolute. It is arbitrary. It is defined by how I feel. Uh, It's interesting. If you were to go, in fact, I had the opportunity to do some things with Todd Friel a couple of years ago, where he and some of the folks that work with him went onto college campuses and asked college students things like, what is truth? And the answer almost invariably was that, well, truth is how I feel, and truth is how you feel. So you have your truth, I have my truth, and my truth can fluctuate depending on how I feel. So the idea that there's any sort of absolute truth is something that is foreign to the secular worldview. And uh, then finally, when it comes to purpose, it's all about personal fulfillment. So when we think about things like social issues like abortion or LGBTQ or even the response to the pandemic, the reason people in America, 94% of them, are acting in ways that seem so completely foreign or alien to us is because they're operating on a completely different set of principles. They're operating out of self-interest, where self is king, and where truth is defined based on what makes them feel good in their pursuit for personal happiness. It's really not that hard to understand, then, why these systems that are so anti-biblical in terms of the moral values that they're presenting have become so popular in Western society. While it is true that all of that is the fruit of sin in a general sense, I mean, from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, Satan began by attacking the truthfulness of God's word, which led to the temptation that resulted in the fall, It's more precise in a Western context to understand that these things are the fruit of systems like rationalism, empiricism, and romanticism. The Christian worldview is incompatible with any form of secularism. 
And the New Testament makes that clear in many different places. One passage that I want us to consider just briefly this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is responding to both the legalism of first century Judaism and the paganism of Greco-Roman society, but he really does articulate how a Christian worldview is antithetical to worldly thinking. And he presents several different key distinctions. One would be the definition of wisdom, which would include things like epistemology, which is the study of knowledge and philosophy. And what we see in 1 Corinthians 1 is that what the world calls wisdom, God calls foolishness. And what God calls wisdom, the world calls foolishness. And you can see that in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 21, where Paul begins there by saying, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And it is true that when evangelicalism set out to create some form of respectable fundamentalism, they were setting out to do something that 1 Corinthians 1 says is impossible until the return of Christ because in the fallen mind, the fundamentals of the faith, the truth of the gospel, the message of the cross, the veracity of scripture will always be viewed as foolishness. And it is only until, as 2 Corinthians 3 says, the spirit removes the veil of unbelief that those who see God's wisdom as folly come to understand it for what it really is, the truth of salvation. A second essential distinction that Paul highlights in this passage, 1 Corinthians 1, is the point of... History is viewed very differently between a Christian worldview and a non-Christian worldview. What the world regards as a scandal, namely a crucified Messiah, God reveals to be the epicenter of the redemptive plan. And you see this in verses 22 to 25. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, uh, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than, than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So you see in that passage that what the world considers to be folly in terms of the point even of history or the point of life, God sets as the very epicenter of redemptive history, the cross of Christ. And that was true in the early church, and it's true today that Christians will be mocked for holding fast to the tenets of the gospel. Thirdly, the goal of life is viewed entirely differently. While the world 
chases power, fortune, and fame. God seeks those who are weak and poor and ignoble. And we see that here in verses 26 to 29. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And so we see God using in a way to actually turn what society values on its head. God uses those things that society despises in order to bring glory to what he does through the gospel. And it goes on there, those things uh, of the world and the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. And then a fourth distinction, the way of salvation, those who are or those whom the world regards as unworthy, God declares to be worthy through the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so verses 30 and 31, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So a fascinating passage of Scripture, and a passage of Scripture that demonstrates that the Christian worldview is antithetical to and mutually exclusive from non-Christian worldviews, And in that passage, as we mentioned, we see the definition of wisdom, the point of history, the goal of life, and the way of salvation as all distinct and incompatible with worldly thinking. So this would include things like epistemology and philosophy, cosmology and psychology, sociology, anthropology, religion, and even views of human value and mortality. Those are fundamental differences, and it should be, I think, instructive for us to recognize that a Christian worldview is incompatible with a non-Christian worldview. And so, as we'll talk about in just a few minutes, we don't reach the world by becoming like the world. We reach the world by maintaining the distinctiveness that defines us as Christians. And so here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, another key passage, one that talks about the kingdom of light being incompatible with the kingdom of darkness, here you have Paul saying, do not be bound together with unbelievers for who or what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship have light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever. So recognizing that distinction is critical. I want to take this from the historical and the theological and talk a little bit about the practical. So how is it that we as Christians in 21st century America can be faithful to guard the truth both for ourselves and for our families? We can leave 
broader society in terms of where America is going, we can trust the Lord with that. We can leave that in his hands. But how can we be faithful within our own sphere of influence, both personally and within our families or at work with friends and neighbors? I want to talk a little bit about guarding the truth and engaging the culture. I think it's important to say at the outset, and I was grateful for Dr. Lawson's message this morning, that any fight against the world will only be successful if you are in Christ, right? Only those who have been given the indwelling spirit have within them God's life and God's power in their fight against the world. And so 1 John 5, 5, who has or who is the one who has overcome the world? It is the one who has believed in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you can't have a Christian worldview without being a Christian. (laughs) You can have a politically conservative worldview, but a politically conservative worldview, to be honest, lacks any real power and is just part of being the way things are going, on the losing team. Whereas to have a Christian worldview, while there's some overlap between the two, I realize, but to have a Christian worldview is to live for Christ, to be defined by Christ, and to have a future that's assured by Christ no matter what happens in any upcoming election or in world events. So a Christian worldview and a conservative worldview, though there's overlap, those two things are not the same. And if you're going to overcome the world, you can only do so successfully through the power of Christ. Uh, Then secondly, as a Christian, don't be surprised if unbelievers view you with suspicion and antagonism. And you can see there in John 15 that the Lord Jesus promised his disciples and by extension all who would follow him that the world would hate them because the world hated him first. Uh, Paul tells Timothy the same thing in his letter to Timothy where he says those who desire to live godly in this present age will be persecuted. That's in 2 Timothy Chapter 3. Now, in any approach to whether it's a philosophical system or even a more explicit solicitation to sin, the threefold strategy that Ephesians 4 and other parts of Scripture give us is a strategy in which we put off that which is harmful or sinful. We renew our minds through the scriptures, and then we put on that which is honoring to the Lord. And so if we follow that same threefold pattern, in terms of putting off, don't allow your heart to be captivated by the, by the um, enticements. <laughs> there it is. By the enticements of a non-Christian worldview. And we see that, for example, in Colossians 2.8, where Paul warns the Colossians to not allow themselves to be captivated by empty philosophy. 
See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the elemental principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. So be on guard. Uh, I think awareness and alertness are key to navigating society in which the dominant worldview is no longer a Christian worldview. And it shows up because of the intense influence of romanticism. It often shows up in things like art and entertainment. In fact, I would argue that entertainment is probably the primary purveyor of a non-Christian worldview. So when you sit down to relax and watch something on whatever your favorite streaming service is, do so with the discernment that says, I'm not going to, or I'm going to be very careful not to allow myself to be influenced by those things that undermine a biblical worldview. Second, in putting off, identify and resist influences that attack the truth of the Christian worldview, which is what we were just saying. 2 Corinthians 10.5 is a verse really aimed at apologetics, but I think it's such a helpful verse where Paul says that we are casting down arguments and every high thing that that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and we're bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And earlier in that context, he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against uh, spiritual influences uh, that, seek to, uh, that seek to attack what we know to be true. Then in terms of renewing your mind, saturate your heart and the minds of your family, those within your sphere of influence with biblical truth, right? The antidote to secularism is biblical truth. And in fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14, all the way through chapter 4, verse 5, we see that the scriptures are the key to or the means of the way in which we learn about, number one, salvation. And in 2 Timothy 3, 16, Well, I don't know where verse 14 and 15 went, but... Oh, this is verse 14 and 15. My slide is just mislabeled. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So that's chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I think it's so interesting in these verses that Paul is telling Timothy, hey, don't be like the false teachers who have abandoned the faith, but instead you stand firm in what you have known from childhood, implying the importance of rearing children in the truth so that when they get to adulthood, they are equipped to continue in that truth. Of course, we know from earlier in 2 Timothy that it was specifically Timothy's mom and grandmother who were the primary spiritual influences in his life. 
The big point here, though, is that it is through the Scriptures that the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ is revealed. So the Scriptures are the means by which the message of salvation is conveyed. Then secondly, it is also the truth of God's Word that sanctifies. And here this is in verses 16 and 17. Familiar verses, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete or adequate. It's not a very good translation. Um, The New American Standard, it means complete. So it's not an adequate translation, ironically enough. But that the man of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. So if your desire is to be equipped for every good work, how do you do that? It's through the Word of God, which the Holy Spirit uses to sanctify the heart. And then thirdly, it is the Scriptures, the truth of God's Word that leads to sound doctrine. And that's in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, where Paul charges Timothy to preach the Word in season and out of season. And then he talks about how they're not going to have a stomach for sound doctrine. They're going to want to have their ears tickled. But he goes on to encourage Timothy to preach the Word so that the congregation might be built up in sound doctrine. And the implication, again, is that through the Scriptures, in the same way that the Scriptures are the means by which you are saved through the message of the gospel and the means by which you are sanctified through the power of the Holy Spirit, so the Scriptures also are the means by which you are grounded in sound doctrine. And so, when it comes to putting on, we then put on the truth of the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification, the sound doctrine, all of which come from the Scriptures. And so we apply the truth of God's Word. Uh, Romans 13, 13, and 14, we put off the deeds of darkness, and then verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Or as Ephesians chapter 6 says, put on the full armor of God. And what is the armor of God? It is to be grounded in the gospel and to have your waist shored up with absolute truth, the truth of God's word, covered in the breastplate of his righteousness, holding the shield of the faith, the truth once for all delivered to the saints, having put on the helmet of the hope of salvation, and then taking up what? The word of God to fend off the attacks of the evil one. So, Don't be fooled into thinking that you can just be a neutral consumer in our culture and not be affected by the contamination of the culture. The contamination of the culture is everywhere. And, you know, the, well, even the Disney cartoons these days are contaminated. (laughs) Got an amen on that. (laughs) All right. Engaging the culture. And this will, uh, we'll just go through these very quickly and then end our time. Remember, we are in the world, but not to be of the world. First John chapter 2, the things of this world are passing away along with its lusts. Don't be fooled into thinking that the way to reach the world is to adopt worldly behavior. Instead, shine as a light of the gospel And rely on the power of the Spirit to change the heart because the Word of God is like a sword that pierces through. 
and then work hard to avoid being contaminated by the world and instead stand firm in your commitment to the Lordship of Christ and exhibit a life of holiness that sanctifies Him as the Lord of your life, right? 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. And when you do that, you'll live in such a countercultural way that people will ask, and then Peter says you're to be ready to give them and explain to them the hope that is in you with patience, with gentleness, and reverence. All right, just two final slides. I wanted to give you some additional resources, and then we will be done. If you wanted to study this idea further, our pastor, along with our pastoral staff, have put together a couple books called Right Thinking for a Culture in Chaos and Right Thinking in a World Gone Wrong, and I would recommend both of those to you. Carl Truman recently published a book that really traces the history of how things have happened in Western society called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, I will say that because he talks a lot about the sexual revolution, that this isn't a book for kids. To be honest, it's heady enough that your kids wouldn't be interested in it anyway, but just a caveat. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, uh, almost, I guess, almost 50 years ago now in the 70s, uh, talked to, uh, wrote a book called How Should We Then Live, which is about the collapse of Western society and Christians' place in it. And then one final book, it's an apologetics book, Greg Bonson wrote a book called Always Ready, which is about presuppositional apologetics, which means it's about an apologetic defense of the Christian faith that understands your worldview and how to interact with other worldviews.